You are listening to The Path Podcast on Mountain Bike Radio. I just want to lay in my bed. Don't feel like picking up my phone, so leave a message. Welcome to another episode of The Path Podcast. Unfortunately, tonight, Ock is not able to join us, so it's uh, just Tawny and I, Nathan, here. Miss uh, you, buddy. Yeah, wish you could be here. Miss you, Ock. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed that opening song. That was the last song i shazammed on my phone when i was on a work trip in orlando florida shazam Shazam. that's often where the songs come from whatever is the last song i shazammed i did not know that (laughs) i was unaware of that dude um in place of ak not being here i think tawny's gonna fill us in on the shop news yeah so um we've got the giant bicycles demo day coming up Sunday, December 10th, from 9 to 2 p.m. at the Path Live Oak location. That's going to be a good one. And I think for the Enduro women, come check out the new hail. That's a that's something worth coming out to check out. Yeah, and I, for the guys, too, I mean, we've talked a lot about the, the new trance. Um, and I think the new um, anthem is really cool, too bumping up the travel a little bit like all all the absolutely all the, the new bikes the, are that bad. new anthem too has all the features of the trance too like slx one by 11 and a dropper post and fox suspension and it's even a couple hundred bucks less than the trance too yeah yeah soup again a lot of bike a lot of bike for a really affordable price so yep giant bicycles demo day coming up sunday december 10th before that more sooner we have our black friday weekend sale and this is always our as as big of a sales we it, it, as clo- it's as big of a sales we have every year. It's one of it's always one of our biggest sales or our biggest sale of the year. And um, that's Friday and Saturday and Sunday after Thanksgiving at both shops. So that'll be a good time, and uh, we always have a little extra fun too on those days. And um, shop news is pretty brief today. I think that's all I got. Cool. Well, speaking of the Black Friday sale, um, if I, I probably most of our listeners are are riders, but do you have any like I probably every blog in the industry does this right? But what are your like go to like good bike rider gifts? Ooh, good question. I there are those out in our listenership who I'm sure would be furious if we talk about this before Thanksgiving. Ah, okay. <laughs> and I think we should stick to that. I think we should talk. We should do. Gift questions after Thanksgiving. Ah, okay. We we will. We but will I will say Black it. Friday deals, like twenty five percent off a bunch of tires and apparel. Like most of it, everything store wide, everything's on sale. Every bike, every tire, every every everything is on sale in the whole store. And it's going to be a fun weekend, and you should come visit us. Cool. And then we'll start talking about gift suggestions after Thanksgiving. That, after we all eat turkey. That works. That works. Cool. Um, so do you want me to give you a little bit of recap on my Orlando trip, which I kind of mentioned? Yes, you, you went to Orlando, that? and we ha- you went to the um, – what was it? The helmet? Well, it was um, – so for work, um, you know, working, you know, kind of related to the bike industry, and we deal with safety equipment, and this was the ASTM um, safety equipment conference, and it's where people kind of – these uh the astm group essentially gets together and discusses um like testing standards and some of these standards are for various sports equipment and some of some of the meetings we went to were regarding helmets and it was more just an like an observatory uh trip you know just to um hear what's hear how some of these standards are discussed and how they're debated and um it was it was really interesting um so we're we talking like snell are we talking about like well snell is another group so astm is probably the one standard that most people are probably most familiar with right now for mountain bike for mountain bike uh well astm does the downhill mountain bike standard so they have a specific downhill mountain bike helmet standard so when we hear about people talking about a downhill rated helmet and how the super two super two re was not downhill rated that's what they're talking about yeah they're talking about in that specific case they're talking about the astm standard um 
And so for helmets, say, for example, to be legally sold in the U.S., they have to meet the CPSC, which is the Consumer Product Safety Commission, which is a government agency, um, on the standard of which how that helmet needs to perform to be able to make it legal for sale in the U.S. Europe has their standard for legal to sell, and um, Australia New Zealand has theirs. And so a lot of the helmets are sometimes there's different models for those different regions. Um, so every helmet that you buy has to pass CPSC. ASTM is kind of a different set of standards. It's a voluntary set of standards. And it's also um, established by committee and it's not a government agency. Um, so CPSC is kind of a minimum benchmark and then ASTM is yeah. voluntary to prove maybe something beyond that. Like Correct. if you want to prove that your helmet that has... Um, like MIPS or something, is that part of something they address? Well, so that's um, that's all very new, right? So um, a lot of the agencies in Europe, in the U.S., um, are all talking about this rotational energy management issue, basically the MIPS issue, right? So I know of three, I know of um, MIPS has something to address this, and then what is it, the three? Uh, 6D. 6D has something to address this, and that's what I know of that has something to address this. And there's a couple other ones as well. Cali has one um, that they just came out to the market with, with these little like um, rubber finger thingies hmm. that kind of help the helmet move a little bit. Um, there's a lot in other industries as I like well. the idea of rubber finger thingies. Not, <laughs> it's not unseen. <coughs> it's pretty cool, actually. Um, they've had some... <coughs> excuse me. Um Race cyclocross today and breathe a lot of dust, and I still got the uh, wheezy lung. Um, uh, so yeah, but he's the, got the black lung pop. <laughs> I've got the black lung. Um, so the the rotational energy management is kind of an interesting thing because the test, the test and the performance criteria. In other words, how are you going to test it, and what's going to be called good enough? All the best brains in the industry are still working on that. That there's nothing that's been established to determine. Um, let's say, you know, MIPS has their internal standard, but that's their secret sauce. But to say that, um, oh, a helmet needs to have so much rotational impact protection. Still, everybody's working that out. It's still so. A as ways far out. as like third party verification that it's actually safer, we'll get back to you on that. Correct, correct. And there's a lot of factors. It's like, you know, in, in a lot of this, you can see videos of how they test these things. And, you know, they drop the helmet, say, on a, a surface that's inclined, or they drop it on a surface that's moving to try to put a spin on the helmet, right? To simulate you falling and skidding and bouncing off the ground at an angle. Well, you got to think, okay, someone has to decide how that test is going to work. How heavy is the head going to be? How big is the head going to be? How is the head going to be instrumented? It's got its own satellites. <laughs> it does, yeah. And um, how, how, what surface is the helmet going to fall on? How often are, is that surface going to have grit? Is it not going to have grit? Did it sit in your car at 100 degrees for seven different afternoons? Right, exactly. What temperature conditions are you... So all that... You know, when you read through those specs, which, you know, everybody can kind of dig into these if, if you're so inclined, but it's pretty dry reading, I, I assure you. But these are the committees that sit down and everybody debates exactly what what's going to be in the spec. And there's a process and a voting process and all that. It's a, it's a committee kind of effort. Um, so anyway, it's interesting um, to see how that works. And so I, I got to observe some of that. And... Um, uh, very smart people, very highly, highly educated people, um, tons and tons of years of experience in different segments of sports. Um, so uh, you're in good when these standards come out, for the most part, you're in pretty good hands. Did you see anything that um, was a surprise to you? Um, I think just being exposed to the process and how many variables need to be so carefully thought out by so many people. I think that was that was. Um, yeah. And it makes sense that it is that outs, way. A lot of ins and outs, a lot of strands in old dude's head. <laughs> yeah, a, lot, a lot of ins and outs, a lot of what have yous. Um, and uh, it was neat to see so many uh, people in from throughout the country, including Canada, um, that were all, you know, you get the, you know, the heads of these impact research laboratories that do like helmet research and impact research 
all debating a point and it's like whoa these are like the titans of this world you know debating the merits of of uh, a, a test method or something like that it, and that was kind of so points of contention are always i think interesting what are there any points of contention that you can share um i think uh like what they debated sometimes well on some like uh say new standards that are being uh discussed for say a new product it's the debates of scoping what that product is mm. and what directions should be focused on to start with. Um, like defining a standard even. Yeah. Like we're well, going to make a new standard and what should, we, what should be the per- goals of this standard? Well, yeah. Basically what they're talking about is what, what's the scope of the standard as to what does this standard cover? How many impacts? Right. What spot on the head? What kind of terrain? What speed? Right. You know, and say, for example, and I'm not familiar with this standard, but I heard this just in passing because, you know, people all around the hotel and the conference center, and there was a group of people uh, debating about uh, a paintball standard. And a paintball standard, um, because I I was, on, I'm really, on, like, I have no connection to the paintball industry, right? But uh, apparently the shape of paintballs is starting to evolve. Mm. They're not round anymore. And so they're debating like, oh, well, this standard was written at a time when the paintballs are round. Mm. <laughs> like, shit, does this does this cover our our uh, does the standard cover this new thing? Do we need to update our standard to include these non-round paintballs? So a classic bike shop narrative, and I'm not saying we this has been said in the past, but I don't think we push these sorts of narratives as hard because they're hard to quantify. But a classic bike shop narrative is all the helmets test to the same standards. Uh, that's somewhat true. Um, all every helmet for sale in the in the U.S. for bicycle use has to pass the CPSC standard. So um, they all pass that minimum standards, and some pass a higher standard. Some pass a higher standard, and one of the higher standards would be the ASTM. I believe it's 1952, which is the downhill mountain bike standard. Do you know if there's something short of that, but? past your in other words is there something to test these helmets that have like more rear coverage and maybe a little more mass compared uh, to just your typical lightest cross-country race or road helmet you know i ugh. so i'm i don't have all this the specs in my head i know like there's a spec for i think skate and maybe skate and rollerblade I think there's various other sports that you could apply but then not those, an intermediate bike spec before it's not full an, face there it there, goes straight from like full XC road all the way to full face as far as correct standards. And, and there there has been some discussion um, because uh, the Dutch have come up with an e-bike helmet standard oh. that is somewhere in between. Um, they the Dutch decided that e-bikes pose a different threat and need a different uh, a different standard for the helmets, uh, and it seemed to be I did I didn't read through it, but generally what, from what I could gather from the discussion is the Dutch is almost, it's almost like an all mountain helmet standard. Um, Speaking of e-bikes, we'll have that road E at the bi- giant bikes demo day. And I rode that and it is super fun. Yeah. Road that's e-bike. A, I'm hearing more and more that the e-bike thing is coming on. Strong. I rode in jeans and flat pedals from the live Oak shop up to the top of the, of the grade there, like where the luge comes out. And oh like, yeah. I think I averaged about 19 miles an hour without breaking a sweat. <laughs> Very comfortable. <It> awesome. <laughs> That's cool. And I still got like a nice brisk walks worth of workout. Nice. That's cool. I mean, they're, it's going to be an interesting world. Well, and, and within this, um, <clears throat> within this group, there's a discussion of like, Hey, is this, uh, is this, um, something we want to look at is does there need to be any bike helmet standard i think there's room for a standard for like enduro type open face helmets like right like the bell super 2re and the troy lee a1 and right and the smith um forefront and and so many others that are these like more rear coverage a little obviously heavier than a and and kind of more robust and less vents than like a full xc road helmet right and also, I'm interested in in having more standards about pen, like poking, okay, like vents, whether what the, what what they could allow in and what they couldn't allow in, and what direction. And I don't know. It's all co- well. And and again, I I don't remember all the specs offhand, but there are tests where it falls onto say a hemispherical shape, and so 
that does limit the size of the vents. You can't make the vents too big. Otherwise, that thing will smash through all the way to the head. Interesting. Um, so there is somewhat of that. It's not like a pokey thing. Um, I believe the DOT motorcycle helmet test does have a pokey part pokey of the component. test. A pokey component. Um, and that's why you'll see DOT helmets aren't going to have vents above a certain point on the helmet because above this point on the helmet, um, it needs to stop the pokey thing. Yeah, makes sense. Um, but as far as, uh, you know, shopping for a helmet um, and saying like, okay, is a MIPS helmet safer than a non-MIPS helmet? Well, there's really no legal standard or test method at this point to say yes or no. And to me, intuitively, like maybe kind of. Yeah, intuitively, you know, I think but it's not, one of those things- Intuitively, I would say the 6D has a more compelling story of safety. So here's the thing about the 6D helmet also. Um, the 6D is, is pretty cool. It's a, like a helmet within a helmet. It's, uh, it's got some- With like elastomers. It was connecting the connecting two. Connecting the two, yeah. Yes, correct. Um, however, the 60 is a much heavier helmet. It's bulky, bulky and heavy. It's bulky and heavy. Um, there's a, a lot to be said for just making a bulky and heavy helmet to say that it's probably going to be a little safer. For sure. For sure. <laughs> um, you know, it would be a very difficult experiment to really, really vet out that technology in and of itself, just the rotational component of it. Um, and then you're going to get the experts debating on the merit, the method of the test, the merits of the test, the procedure, all that stuff. So it's all still very new. It's when I was racing downhill a lot, I had this test I would do on downhill full faces, and it was really embarrassingly unscientific. But I'm, but I feel like it had merit. And <laughs> basically, I'd put the helmet on and I'd use the like heel of my palm to just smack myself in the head as hard as I could, mm-hmm. and I would I would note just kind of like how much it gave me a headache. <laughs> That's probably not the best way of going about it. But you will notice if you use that test that some helmets dampen that impact more than others. And fit yeah. is a big component of that. So to me, this was more a test of how well the helmet fit me than it was a test of yeah. the helmet itself. Well, so, and here's, here's an interesting point that I've heard is that some studies have, you know, for years and years and years, they say, helmet needs to fit you right. Helmet needs to fit you right. Helmet needs to fit you right. Okay, but now we have this MIPS technology. And what this MIPS technology does is let the helmet slip and slide around your head a little bit, right? And so they're actually fine. Yeah, right, but it still is close enough to your head to not accelerate into it. I think yes. that's when bad fit becomes problematic, when there's a space where your head can accelerate into the helmet. True. But there's some studies that have been done where a looser-fitting helmet helps mitigate rotational forces. Wow. To, yeah, I mean, to a certain extent. I, I would say I, w- I would believe that in so much as anything that mitigate. So rotational forces are one factor in eliminating a concussion situation. Yes. And, and, and they're more relevant, I would imagine, like a whipping scenario where your head kind of comes whipping around as opposed to like a driving <coughs> scenario where you like pile drive something. <coughs> well, it's actually um, a big part of it is when you come in and you take, say, a glancing blow to the ground right. where okay. it kind of grips and, you know, the the way that MIPS that makes sense. displays it is they have but a... But like te- a direct hit is where you want that tight fit where you can't accelerate into it. <clears throat> kind of. Basically, the... We got some weird noises from outside. We think everything's okay. Nathan's going to go check. While Nathan's going to check, I'm just going to say we got the Kona demo. We got 2017 Kona demo bikes in yesterday, and we built most of them up already because we're that excited about it. We got Hanzo Carbon demo bikes. We got Process 111 demo bikes. We got Process 153 demo bikes. Pretty exciting. Yep. Sorry. Hang on. I'm just going to double check. Yeah, we heard some weird noises outside. Nathan is investigating. Hopefully, he remains safe. Um, listeners, we love Nathan. We want him to be safe. All is well. All is well in Rancho Santa Margarita. <laughs> the neighbors are stirring. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I guess getting getting back to the... I guess what a lot of people are wondering is what helmet is safest to buy, Right. Um, well, to me, it's like safest within, safest, lightest, best breathing, safest within the context of 
of the helmet that, you know, safe is within the other needs. So, like, for example, I would want um, the safest 1,000-gram helmet that I could buy with good airflow or whatever the case may be. Right. Well, I, I guess what I'm um, getting at is the, uh, as far as the, you know, relative safeness of a, <clears throat> of a helmet... Just rest assured that um, all helmets pass a minimum. They all have to meet the same minimum standards. Um, one of the few places, actually, if you're interested, and they don't do a really comprehensive test, but uh, Consumer Reports actually does impact helmets, and they do um, give you a rating based on that. So Consumer Reports is willing to do do impact tests, and if you... Now, they test, like, the best helmets in the market, <clears throat> which a lot of times when I see the list of helmets that they test, I'm not super familiar with all of them because they're, like, the super big sellers, right? So it's not going to be the helmets that we're interested in as more elite mountain bikers. Oh, it's, like, the mid-level, mid-price. It's, it's, like, the 20 best-selling bicycle helmets, like, period. Right. You know, like, everywhere. Right. So it's going to be, you know, one that sold a billion and Big Five might be in there or something. <laughs> exactly. And um, so Consumer Reports does do tests where they'll impact the helmets and then report, say, hey, this one did better than another one. Um, the other thing is, um, I believe it's Virginia Tech is starting to talk about doing a rating system. And this is pretty far off. We're talking three or four years out. Um, but everybody's been talking about that. And that's, I think, what consumers kind of want is like, you know, you, when you talk about safety of a car, there's a third-party company that tests these cars and crashes them and tells you which ones... Granted, they all have to meet legal minimums to be selling cars in the, in the U.S., right? right? But some do better than others, and these independent agencies are willing to say which ones do better than others and buy how much. And then you can get, like, the Volvo of helmets. Correct. Boxy, but good. <laughs> Boxy, but good. Um, and uh, so... Uh, if you feel like Googling, Virginia Tech has been doing some of that. I think they've been starting to play in the f like maybe football and hockey world or something. The bike world is going to be a bigger deal to them because there's so many more helmets on the market. Um, there's a lot of helmets to test. I mean, like hundreds and hundreds of different bike helmets out there in the world, right? Um, I thought everyone has a Super 3R or a Troy Lee A1. <laughs> or a Smith Forefront. They they should give us a call and let Can't us. Can't everyone afford like a two hundred dollar helmet? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but anyway, at some point in the future, we might start to see a star rating system. And Virginia Tech is kind of the uh, um, tip of the spear. It sounds like in, in in that space. Cool, that'd be cool. I think people like that. People want to people want to quantify their options. Right. Right. And, and, you know, I think the car industry has a ton more resources and people and testing and interested parties. And that's why you see something like that. And, and like I said, Consumer Reports is kind of doing, um, kind of doing their, their role, but, you know, they can only do so much. I mean, Consumer Reports tests everything, right? I mean, your washing machine, your, your, your dishwasher, your cars, your, everything. All industries, basically. All industries. So, you know, they, they there are really a lot of sharp people over there, and they they try to get test instrumentation or deal with outside labs and and all sorts of stuff. Um, uh, but yeah, if you're interested, look up the you know if you're ever really interested in how helmets rate, take a look at Consumer Reports. And I think the last one I looked up, like the twenty nine dollar helmet, had the best impact results. Oh, <laughs> uh, probably because it doesn't have as many vents. Exactly, it's a big, clunky, heavy, non ventilated, crummy. Helmet. It takes engineering to put those vents in and make it less safe, and engineering costs money. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so anyway, um, and also there was an article recently, I think there was a shoot, an all-mountain helmet shootout on Pink Bike maybe a couple of weeks ago that Vernon Felton wrote, and he had a really good opener that explained MIPS and non-MIPS and what does it mean and all that kind of stuff. And he made a really good point. I think we might have touched on this on the show before, but I want to reiterate. He made a really good point. And people really have to remember this when it comes to helmets is helmets are disposable. End of story. End of story. You, you smack your head on a helmet, it's done. Every helmet you buy is a one-hit wonder. And so his recommendation... And maybe two to three years. 
maxed, even if you don't crash. I think. <clears throat> yeah, there's there's a certain number of years that you there's UV breakdown <clears throat> and heat breakdown and for sure. But as far as impact, absolutely one hit, one hit and done. And his recommendation um, focused on it. Kind of kept that in kept that in the context of his recommendation and his shootout and he inherently did not pick the most expensive helmet so buying super expensive helmets understand that that helmet is not going to last any longer than a cheaper helmet it's going to last through the same event one hit one hit on your head and that helmet is is now done so to me mostly what i pay for is um comfort and weight savings and airflow exactly exactly so if you're buying a more expensive helmet, to me, that's what you're paying for. Absolutely. What's yep. your favorite, hel- favorite helmet right now? Ooh. Um, I, I might be <laughs> biased and say... I'm, this, I think the Smith one's really good. So yeah, I really I, like the Smith. I've been really into that Smith helmet myself. I, other helmets that I wear from time to time, I wear the, I wear the Troy Lier one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wear the... Um, I wear the giant rail, which is to me a sleeper. It's a little less expensive, and it's a yeah. really good helmet. Um, it's a lot like the new. It almost has the exact same shape and feature set as the new Pock helmet, mm-hmm. um, which is also a cool helmet. Yeah, the new Pock one. The I think it's called the Tectal. Tectal, yeah, Tectal. T e c t a l. Yeah, it looks good. I like. I like the aesthetic. It's a nice aesthetic. It's kind of slim for a. It's slim for a robust, for a beefy helmet. Right, yeah. Um, that, and then... Um, so these are all the kind of like extra rear coverage helmets. That yeah, trail all mountain helmets. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the Smith one, I think, especially the Forefront, they have a couple of new helmets out, which don't really do it for me. But the original Forefront is... Um, I think it's a, uh, it's a polarizing design. It like has aesthetic, a, it has a unique aesthetic, right? And no I no one else uses that kind of honeycomb material, yeah, or maybe people are starting to. Um, there's one other player on the market, and Dura came out with a helmet. No with one a honeycomb. else did use it. Correct, correct. And it really has that like land speeder from Star Wars styling, yeah, too, which I kind of like. I like it too. I really like the look of it. But so, moreover, it is light and really breathes well. Yeah, and, and the, the pads straps nice. are nice and soft, and the pads are nice and soft. Yes. And, and to me, also, like, everyone's got a little bit different head shape. Mm-hmm. And all day, every day, we have people come in and figure out which helmet fits their head the best. Exactly. And all the companies, they pick different head shapes as what they think is the best or what, you know, what they like. And then, you know, how they orient the padding. It's You, you got to fit find the helmet that you like, that you're comfortable with the weight, the look, the all that stuff. But just rest assured that they're they're all they're all safe. The important thing is that you wear it. Wear it, yes. Wear it. Replace it when you when you crash it. Um, and uh, yeah, don't. I I just always worry with so many super expensive helmets on the market that some people may be less hesitant. You know that they crash. They're like, oh, but I spent so much on this helmet. Like, no, oh, that's no, an no. interesting point. Like, you you invested enough in it that you don't want to let it go. Right. Like you know your your five hundred dollar carbon downhill helmet. It's still, you hit it once, you probably smash some of that foam and you need to get a new helmet. Yeah, there might be some of that. I think more often we, I would say that the person who buys that helmet would like to buy another one soon. <laughs> would enjoy that process. Yeah, exactly. They're exactly. Good, good little consumers. Yep. <laughs> Successful little consumers. <laughs> yep. So uh, keep that in mind, you know, buy a helmet at a price point that you're comfortable with smashing it. You know, like that you're not going to uh, get too attached to it or break the bank to get the helmet. And then, you know, you don't, you'll need a, you, you won't want to buy another one when you, you should. Yeah. So that, we should move on from helmets. We've talked about helmets for a little while, huh? Yep. We have. Man, I went on the best night ride the other day. I just want to tell everyone out there, go on night rides. <coughs> so good. And it makes, it makes the trails that you're used to. It, it's a whole new trail. It's a whole new adventure. Yep. And if you're in SoCal right now, the the nights aren't too cold yet, and the sky is beautiful, and um, lights have gotten really inexpensive. You can get into night riding and 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 get a light that'll really light up the trail for like fifty to a hundred bucks. So yeah, just to 
so my first light that I got, which was probably in 1997, I, I kept this light for a long time. It was a Cygo Light Night Rover NICAD Extra. And this light, it was a NICAD battery. And when you charged it, you had to make sure that one, it was discharged when you started and you had to charge it for a certain amount of time and you were responsible for unplugging it at said time. Otherwise, you're going to overcharge the battery. Awesome. So, so you had to time it. like So you had to get home. It's like, I can't like, go hang out with you. I'm charging my lights. Yeah. Or like you get home and you charge it. It was like a 15-hour charge time. And so you're like, you'd go to bed and be like, okay, I got to make sure I unplug it at 7 a.m. when I get up. And so it was you had to charge it that way. And then it had two bulbs, both 5, watt, or five and a 10-watt halogen. You could turn on both or one or the other. Yeah. And it ran for a long time. That 5-watt would run, I think, it had a 7-hour burn time with that battery. But it was 15 watts of halogen light, full blast. And that's I remember doing 7-plus-hour night rides. And, back and we then, didn't talk about lumens back then, but I'm guessing it's like 150 lumens or something. I have no... Yeah, lumens were not the, the metric. Just it based was, on my rough eye perception of what lightning is. Yeah, it was it was pretty pretty low and it was a janky light too like it was it was like i don't even think it was waterproof yeah and, some of the best rides i've been on have been night rides oh yeah but now you can like you said you can get 50 to 100 dollar lights that are 7 800 lumens you can buy three of the things put two on your bars and one in you your helmet it's almost like almost go as fast at night as you can during the day oh yeah and there's so much for sure. more time to ride that way and if it's in the summer when it's hot you can ride at night Yep. When, in the winter, when the days are short, you can ride at night. Absolutely. But watch out for object fixation. Ah, that's right. I hadn't had object. I hadn't gone on a night ride in like a year, and um, I was just having a great old time. And I was ripping down this high speed section of single track that goes down into this kind of little saddle. And there's this rock in the middle of the trail, and you can like launch over it. You can go to the left of it. You can go to the right of it. It's like a one foot rock. But like my light kind of shined on it and like I couldn't look away from it and I was just getting dragged. And this hasn't happened to me in years, like this kind of like target fixation phenomenon. Right. But it got me thinking, like I bet some of our listeners could use some tips on how to avoid it. Yeah, it kind of – it goes back to that like look where you want to go, not where you don't want to go thing. Don't think of it like her. (laughs) Don't not look at your target. (laughs) Yes, this is – Think in the positive, not in the negative. Exactly. Think in the positive. So look where you want to go. And and don't frame it as don't look where you don't want to go. Right. That's what I did. I was like, don't don't look at that rock and don't look at that rock. And then I was looking at that rock and it's like, I guess it had been too long since I had to worry about it. For some, I had unwrapped, I had solved the, the mystery of target fixation long enough that I had to revisit the mystery. <laughs> oh, man. And at night, right? And, and I I came from like full just – Jesse was behind me, and we had a whole trail of people behind me, and I was in the front, and I wanted to stay. I didn't want to get caught, and I'm like screaming down this descent, and all of a sudden I'm just like dead stop, just staring at this rock. Oh, man. They still didn't catch me, though. Nice. Jesse did for a sec. <laughs> he can, a, he can get fun. after it. Yeah. But yeah, target fixation. Look where you want to go. Don't go to the Nauta Creek entrance. <laughs> Don't go to the Nauta Creek entrance. Yes. <laughs> For those that that were that listened to our our couple of shows ago about our Sedona experience at the uh, RV park, they all know about her. I'm gonna beat the concept of her in just. I'm gonna beat it to death. But I'm just gonna I'm gonna switch it to they. because I don't think she really deserves the full brunt of how much I want to repeat that. <laughs> right she's just a, a woman somewhere man she's pretty much innocent and i just want to beat it into the ground you know and really even womankind doesn't deserve it so yeah i'm gonna use they but they. don't think like them it could have they, just as easily been a, been a guy who developed an entire rv park around every rule as a negative right lots of dudes think that way <laughs> and they probably have a problem with target fixation <laughs> for sure all right. Well, maybe listener questions. Yeah, yeah. We we had a handful of listener questions. Did you want to talk about the the transition question? Yeah. So that's what that's in one of these questions. Yeah, that was actually a fairly recent one. I think we kind of had a question about 
Well, do we want to kind of talk about the night riding stuff a little bit? We had a night riding question. I don't remember the specifics of it, but maybe we could answer the night riding question in light of us talking about night riding. Do you remember riding. what it was? Because I don't see it right now. Uh, um, I had a question queued up if you want to go to it, though. Yeah, yeah, we can do that. So, David. I'm going to read David's whole question. I haven't been doing that. I'm going to try it. Okay. I just sold a 29er with a 2.3 purgatory on the front tire, and it measured just barely over 29 inches in diameter. I just bought a new 27.5 bike with a 2.3 WTB Vigilante on the front with a 29-millimeter internal rim width. It's set up tubeless, and it measures 28 and a quarter in diameter. Twice on the trail, I was asked if it was a plus-size tire. I have noticed that with the two-point trail the 2.4 trail boss on the rear, I can't get either tire to slide. The grip is amazing. Although it is fall in the Northwest, so the grip on anything but big rocks and roots is usually good. What's the deal? Could this have something to do with your latest discussion on wider rims? I don't care. Of course, I'm just curious. I wonder if one day we find that 29ers with 25 millimeter rims and 27 and a half with 30 millimeter rims, ride more similar than we'd expect. And I assume he means with big tires too. By the way, I don't use the thumb, thumb test. I always fill tires with a compressor and a gauge. So that's a good point. I mean, he, he's pointing out that the thumb test isn't as accurate as a compressor or a gauge, and we all agree. But we also know that um, because of different, many factors it, like like thickness of the rubber and air volume, make squishiness as almost as important as a factor as air pressure. Right. Well, in essentially you're trying to use air pressure to quantify a, uh, a squishiness, right? Like that's essentially what you're trying to get I to. Totally so agree. it just, it just depends how accurate your squishiness gauge is. And, and I think the reason we were talking about the thumb test is because let's say you're like, I run my tires at 27 PSI. Well, if you switch casings that are significantly different or really change the size of the rim, you all of a sudden you can have two tires with the same pressure, two tire rim configurations with the same pressure that feels significantly different. And ride differently. Right. Because essentially what you're trying to do is you're trying to balance the force that it takes to bottom out the tire, which is a specific to a rider thing, um, conditions, ride, riding style, rider weight, and you're trying to... Um, control tire flex again riding style riding conditions rider weight so essentially once you kind of get that figured out it's a real slam dunk thing to assign a pressure to those characteristics but figuring out those characteristics is still a trial and error thing by each individual rider but to to the point of the question of will 27 and a half with a wider <clears throat> rim ride very similar to 29 with a narrower rim i'm not so sure and i do i, I I'm not so sure I I even see that a wider rim leads to a bigger diameter. It shouldn't. Because yeah. if you if think anything, about thing a smaller diameter because it's using some of that casing to make width instead of diameter. Right, it it's really how it's distributing the um the the tread itself. Um you know, there might be a slight I'm trying to think if there's a slight diameter change. I'm trying to kind of conceptualize the geometry but Really, there's like there's bands and threads through the tire that really only let it expand to a certain point, and um, you know the tire is flexible in some directions. But if you take a tire and try to stretch it like a rubber band, it doesn't. It, right. It's very fixed in those dimensions, it's especially too, at the bead. The bead's yeah, not stretching. Yeah, yeah, the bead does not stretch at all. You don't want it stretching at all, uh, you know, or no substantial amount because you don't want it popping off the rim. And so the tread area has similar bands and. Not similar, but it has like you know threads and things like that through it that keep the diameter in check. But but to David's point, I do think that big fat tires on twenty seven and a half kind of blurs the line a little bit with twenty nine. Yes, as far as rim diameter and as far as where to, how to set your bike up to get a lot of traction, right, and all that. It's interesting, and I think it'll be fun to watch it play out. Yeah. It's going to be a continuing, evolving thing, but yeah, and and that's that's where we're getting these bikes that can be set up with, say, twenty-seven five plus or twenty-nine. Is the diameter exactly the same? No, it's not. 
is diameter, you know, true outer diameter of the tire a factor of ride characteristic? Yes. Do those characteristics really affect your riding situation or not? Maybe, maybe not. Um, but uh, I've run a 27.5 with, I think, 35 millimeter internal rims and like 2.4-ish tires. Um, and so my my personal opinion is a 29er tire, a 29er bike, and a chubbier, you know, not not fat, but kind of chunky like 27. Two, three. Yeah, like a 2.3 on a wide, wide-ish rim on a 27.5, they're still different. Yeah, I agree. It's still, a, it's still a different riding experience. It's still a different handling experience. I mean, granted, everything else is different about those two setups, but I can't say that that factor can bring those two things together. Right. And the fact that the closer they come together, the more the 27 and a half inch rim comes close to having the same dia- diameter as a 29 inch wheeled bike, the smaller the tire is on the 29er and the bigger the tire is on the 27 and a half. And in some ways, the further the gap in handling. Right. And that's where you're getting much different squish distances in the tire. Cause now the tire is so big you have another inch of squish distance. So here's our night riding question. Frank um, says, you guys have been talking about night riding a lot lately, which I love, especially in the winter once the snow falls here in the frigid tundra of Minnesota. Over the years, I've gotten the chance to know Tommy Bryant, formerly of Night Rider, who sold me my older Minute 700 dual setup, which I usually run on my bars paired with a Night Rider Pro 1400 on my helmet. So that's a lot of lemons. I also have a Minute 600 cordless that I use f- for either a backup at events or commuting. I really like Night Rider products, and they stand behind their products when you have issues. They've repaired my 700 dual setup twice and my Pro 1400 once, free of charge each time. What are your f- preferred lights and why? The reason I ask is I was thinking about ordering the newer Pro 1800 and moving my 1400 to my bars. People always joke that I bring enough light to our rides for everyone, but I feel like you can never have enough light, especially when you're, when you're moving fast through the tight Midwest trees. So I agree with I, I agree um, with Frank that Night Rider is a solid company and they stand behind their products. And I've owned a couple of Night Rider lights and been pretty happy with them. Yep. Um, Lately, I've been running a Lazine light, and I've been kind of going minimalist, like 800 on the bars only, and that's it. Um, and personally, if I'm going to run a helmet light, I like a really light helmet light, like just a minute, right, or something. Um, I don't know what do you th- what have you been running, Nathan? Um, I'm running some kind of inexpensive uh, commuter lights by Cygolite, and Cygolite's a local company. Yeah, they're here. made in Santa Ana. Yeah, they're in Santa Ana. Um, and also, I have kind of a soft spot because that was my very first light was the Psycho Light. Nice. Um, the one that charged for 14 hours. Yes, exactly. Um, so I have two like ex- explorers or something like that. They're like 800 lumen, all self-contained Psycho Lights where you charge them all together. It's a little heavy for the helmet. Um, the ones, my money, no object lights that I would love to try are the Lupin the lupine lights yeah those are known for high quality and and yeah. they, they don't have a lot of plastic in the construction i don't think which i like and right um their helmet light the head of the light looks really really small and then the battery pack is separate so you can distribute the weight on your helmet so i've been i've been eyeing one of those i just haven't had the i haven't done enough night riding consistently where i'm like oh i'm gonna spend the well, it's just hard to get really dollars. excited about a multi-hundred-dollar light when you can get a light that you can almost ride full speed at night for, like, $90. Exactly. Exactly. And, it, and you can get a replaceable little battery for it. And yeah. Those Lazine lights are cool because you can get an extra battery. Yep. And then you can charge the extra battery, and it's tiny. It's, like, the size of a AA battery. Right. And it runs for six hours on the low setting, and you could get an, have an extra one. Right, like a, in your pocket, and basically. It's a full metal construction, and it's like around a thousand lumens for about a hundred bucks, and it's, it's pretty hard to argue with. Yeah, exactly. And and um, the other thing too is uh, when de- depending on your light setup or how frequently 
you you ride at night um i found that i if i'm riding a lot at night i'll actually have a helmet set up with a night a, a light on it and i don't like taking sure. it on and off i agree completely i like to get a good <laughs> helmet night riding setup going and leave it the light on leave the at least the mount on the helmet yes and maybe the yeah. light too even yeah exactly and like with the lupine setup if i were to get something like that that having the two components that you have to mount the little battery pack and the head unit i would absolutely have a secondary helmet for that you know like you know get an inexpensive helmet just for night riding i know a lot of guys who set up their night riding helmets uh, sans visor because you ah. really you know the like their night riding helmet doesn't have a visor so that the, depending where you mount the light and you know stuff like that that makes a lot of sense makes a lot of sense i have this weird feeling that my visor might somehow protect my eyes from brush at night but I don't know if it's valid. <laughs> it could be. I would I would highly recommend wearing some type of eyewear first and foremost. But <laughs> That's a great suggestion. <laughs> that will protect your eyes for sure from brush. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, there probably are a lot of... It's been a while since I've explored the area of like truly high-end nightlights. And yeah. I bet if I did, I would be pleasantly surprised about just how bright they are and probably about how even they spread the light across the field of vision and probably right. about how probably i'd be really impressed with how wide the field of vision is and maybe yeah. also impressed with the spot aspect of it and right there's all kinds of cool stuff out there i'm sure so um recently it was actually last weekend i did um a ragnar trail race which is like a relay running race and there's it goes around the clock and so i had to get a headlamp and when I was discussing this, I, uh, you know, our resident uh, uh, running expert is uh, Brian, who's the purchaser at the at the path. I talked to him and said, "Hey, wh- what about headlamps?" And he said, "Petzl has um, a lighting technology that it auto adjusts the light based on I think it's where you're looking or like it it's sensing something and it auto dims and brightens." Whoa! So like, Wait, if you it can't be tracking your eyeballs. I, it's not. I your, wanted to track my eyeballs. But yeah. No, I don't. I don't know. I think it. I think it has to do with um, if you're like looking down, it kind of dims, or if you're looking up, it brightens. You know that kind of thing. Huh. Um, and it's uh, helped to optimize battery life. And he said it. He said he's seen these in use, and they work really, really well. And I'm wondering at. I think there's a couple of bike companies that so have kind of toyed with it. Kind of operating on the idea that the faster you're going, the further ahead you're looking. Maybe. I think that's it's probably that. I got I got to think the sensor is an accelerometer. Um it might actually, you know what? I could be wrong. I need to do a little bit more research on this, but there's some sensor. It may be an ambient light sensor too. It's like let's say you're running or doing whatever it is you're doing and the sun's slowly coming mm. up, it'll slowly dim the light. Mm. Um so it may be a, a light sensor, but I the way Brian was describing it, it seemed like it was a where you're looking sensor. Um or maybe it's getting some bounce back of the i've i'm i have no idea how this works but maybe it's a bounce back of the light where there is an optical sensor and let's say you're looking at something close it's kicking back a lot of light and it dims who knows anyway um i think there's a couple of high-end lights in the bike industry that sense if you're climbing or descending and i love it and dimmer soon i will assimilate to the board <laughs> I think those are really expensive, though, and I, I want to say maybe it was Lupine that was some of their super high... I mean, they have a $1,300 light. <laughs> and I think it's like 4,500 lumens and knows what you're thinking. <laughs> $1,300. Yeah. For really a, a glorified flashlight. <laughs> a very glorified flashlight. I'm sure it's glorious. <laughs> yeah. I don't think... Maybe you don't need to glorify it. I think anecdotally, I think Brian might have ordered one at some point... A friend of his called from Alaska that did like the Iditarod that <laughs> wanted one. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was some like very extreme situation where this light was needed. Man, we have to get Brian on the show. Yes, absolutely. Talk about some of these extreme situations. He does. He 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 is not unfriendly or he is not, not unfamiliar. Of heart. Yes. No, he, he he does he is my go to when I when I have questions about gear not only obviously is he the purchaser of the path but man he is if you have a question about especially things shifting towards the general outdoor world like if i if i need to get something that i can't get at the path that say i need to shop for say rei 
I asked Brian. He for likes sure. to put himself in a situation where he's going to have a lot of very specific, very peculiar needs, and then meticulously fill those needs. Yes, through research. Yes, absolutely. Um, I I can't imagine you filling the, this position at the shop with a better guy, for a better guy from a personality standpoint to fit, fill the role. Yeah, he he. De- Brian is definitely a, a student of the game. Yes, he and he he finds all the cool stuff for sure. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, if there's lights out there that that do the auto dimming and things like that, because I do find myself, you know, I think we all do this. We put the light on low mode to climb and bump it up to high. But if it can do that automatically, that's pretty rad. Yeah. And that's actually something I was, even just the ability to do it remotely, which I've had on some previous lights, which I don't have on my current light. Yeah. That is something I kind of miss. And like, I imagine there's probably going to be some like Bluetooth remotes and stuff like that. Yep. (laughs) Maybe a clapper, <laughs> <laughs> or maybe a maybe a, a hey night rider instead of a hey Siri. Hey night rider. Oh, actually, yes, kid. <laughs> <You're>, yes, Michael. <laughs> Me saying hey Siri, my phone responded to that. Uh, if, if I say hey night rider, I wanted to say yes, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> Get brighter. <laughs> oh man, should we end it on that note? Um, I'm there- feeling pretty punchy. <laughs> there was one 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 comment I just wanted to I guess respond to a comment it wasn't really a question but um, I've been doing a lot of cyclocross racing did some cyclocross racing today um, tis the season so it seems to happen every weekend um, but James sent us a question or a, a comment he said he I was having some issues with the uh, compass stellacomb tire cross tires and burping. And uh, I just appreciate him sharing his experience. It sounds like he had a very similar experience. So I'm not the only one that was kind of having a tough time with these tires staying beaded. I've Since I had the first poor experience running them at about 25 PSI, I've bumped it up to about 30, 32. And it, they seem to be doing better. And I'm also trying not to ride my cyclocross bike like a mountain biker and jam into corners like a bonehead. Um, and it seems to be doing doing better. But anyway, I just wanted to thank James for sharing that experience to kind of uh, helped me um, not Hope feel you like know I was. You're not the only one. I'm not the only one. I'm not. I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. Misery loves company. Yeah. It, it, exactly. Exactly. Cool. Well, All right. Uh, well, with that, just remind our listeners. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Um, I think we're a little late getting this show out, but it's around the holidays, and so we'll be. You know, we we got to work with our schedules, and like I said, even unfortunately, we couldn't get Ock in on this particular show. Um, but uh, keep sending us questions to um, sales at thepathbikeshop.com. Um, put in the subject line uh, podcast questions. And feel free to participate with the hashtag thepathpodcast on Instagram. Um, we always enjoy checking out your, uh, your photos and, and the stuff you want to share with us and kind of be part of the Path Podcast community. Um, and uh, say with that... Good evening. Love the bike you ride. Love the bike you ride. All right. Good night. Don't feel like picking up my phone. So leave a message at the tone. Because today I swear I'm not doing anything. Uh, I'm going to kick my feet.